Good morning. Uh, my name is Josh Stales. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's good to be with all with you all this morning. Um, it's first Sunday. It's a good Sunday. We have the youth group here with us. <laughs> we go, me and some of those kids go go way back to to, to being in the fourth through sixth grade um, when they would pick their nose during the lesson. Some of you grew out of that. This, this morning, we're taking all of chapter 18, and I'm looking forward to it because we're going to see some, some really, really good things. Right after I got saved um, at the church that I was currently attending at the time, um, I got asked to, to serve in the youth ministry. And, and one Sunday morning, I came, or one, one event, I came early to, to meet the, the youth pastor and some of the kids. And I remember walking into the youth pastor's office and looking around and seeing everyone dressed in almost the exact same way. There was a uniform. It was khaki shorts, a Volcom shirt, rainbow sandals, and an acoustic guitar. <laughs> and, it, and it stopped me dead in my tracks because I was walking into this same room wearing a FUBU shirt, baggy anchor blue jeans, some all-white Air Force Ones, and a chain I got from nothing but silver. You, you might laugh at my style, but all that matters is that my wife, my future wife, was feeling it, right? <laughs> and I know it's a superficial thing, but that shock that I felt when I walked into the room has stuck with me for all of these years because it was the first time when I was in church and the thought occurred to me, I, I, I don't fit in. I, I, I don't belong. It would be the first time, but it wouldn't be the last. And I think if we're honest, each of us have felt like that at one point or another in our lives. The feelings where you, you look around and you feel different and you feel strange and you feel out of place. And then comes this impulse to hover around the fringes trying not to be seen or to just take off entirely. And the question I want to ask this morning is, is, is what do we do with those things? What do we do when we feel those things? And what has always encouraged me is the fact that our God is a creative God. We see it not only in the variety of the things that he creates, but in how he works. And this has been the case all throughout the entire book of Acts. But in chapter 18, we see this variety in a single church. We see various forms of ministry revolve around a singular purpose walked out by a diverse people. And the reason I want to lay this in front of you is to show you that there's no box that you need to fit into. So that if you have those feelings that you don't belong, you can remember that we are, are different and in different stages with different orals, but all with purpose. And with that, let's jump into the text with Paul on his second missionary journey, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Paul's move from Athens to Corinth would have been probably pretty jarring, right? Athens was the hub for Greek thought and philosophy. Corinth was the hub for immorality and depravity. Corinth was so known for its depravity that in these times, if you acted immoral, you were said to be acting like a Corinthian. So Paul traveling from Athens to Corinth is like leaving the philosophy classroom and heading to the frat house. 
And what's interesting is that the religion dominated both of these cities. But the idols they worshipped resulted in two different forms of depravity. In Athens, you couldn't throw a rock without hitting a statue dedicated to a false god. But in Corinth, there would have been a singular structure that dominated the landscape. There was a massive rock outcrop called the Acro-Corinth. It was the Acropolis or the fortress of ancient Corinth. And on its highest summit was a temple, a temple dedicated to the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite. And the city's worship of this idol was rampant and debased. And it characterized Corinth, and it was Paul's next stop. Let's keep reading, verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. We know a few things about how Paul arrived in Corinth. We know he was alone because Silas and Timothy were left in Berea. We know he had no place to stay when he got to the city. And what's implied here in this text is that he also had no money. But when he gets to Corinth, he meets a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And between their appearance here and their mention in Romans 16, we know a few things about them. We know Aquila was originally from Italy. Both he and Priscilla lived in Rome, but were pushed out when Claudius pushed all of the Jews out. We know that they partnered with Paul. We know that they risked their lives for Paul. We know that later they had a church that met in their home, and we know that it's cute that their first names rang. But what connected these two to Paul is notable. They were all tent makers, or better, could be better understood as leather workers. Aquila and Priscilla opened their home and their work to Paul. And for the first time in the book of Acts, we have Luke recording Paul having to balance a job and his missionary work. Paul, during the week, he worked and then dedicated the Sabbath to reasoning in the synagogue. We know he not only did this in Corinth, but also in Thessalonica and most likely Ephesus too. This is a model for what we call bivocational ministry. We have pastors at the village church that work jobs outside of this church. They're teachers and attorneys and track coaches. They work in sales and finance. They have community groups, they lead apprentices and they preach, and they provide wisdom on the church's finances. And I love these men, and I'm inspired by how hard they work for our sake. They're good men. And not only does Paul give us this precedence, he demonstrates its benefits. Through his work, he had the means to support himself so that he can do ministry in a place that desperately needed to hear the gospel. His work supported his ministry. Now let's bring this home for a second. We, we are here in Orange County. And the cost of living is high. In fact, last year it was 52% higher than the national average. That's 56 high, 56% higher than Austin, Texas. That's 57% higher than Nashville, Tennessee. That's 36% higher than Denver, Colorado. And just for fun, the cost of living in Orange County is 65% higher than it is in Wichita, Kansas. I'm telling you, man, we could just go to Kansas and live like kings. 
but we're here. So what if, what if your job has been provided by God so that you can make a living in a place like Orange County because there's work to be done here? What if your job has been provided and given for more than just the paycheck, but to give you access to spaces and spheres and neighborhoods where God has called you to be a minister of the gospel? Paul's work allowed him to do ministry in a place where he otherwise may not have been. And so for those of us considering full-time vocational ministry, I think it shows us that full-time work and faithful ministry aren't mutually exclusive. Because ministry isn't just for people on the church's payroll. Bivocational ministry does, however, have its limitations, primarily limitations on the amount of time bivocational servants can dedicate to their ministry. And this is brought out in how Luke records the shift that takes place when Timothy and Silas rejoin Paul in Corinth. Let's read it in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the, that the Christ was Jesus. Paul goes from reasoning one day a week in, on the Sabbath in verse 4 to being occupied with the word in verse 4. Five. Now, the word occupied here means to be wholly absorbed and constrained by the word. So the picture that's being painted is that Paul isn't just reasoning from the scriptures on Sabbath. He's doing it now all week. And it begs the question, what changed? We have a pretty good idea of what changed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, Paul wrote, comment, commenting on his time in Corinth, and he says this. And when I was with you, So this tells us that they brought with them financial support that freed Paul up so that he could stop working his trade and start devoting full-time his, his efforts into ministry. We have two full-time pastors at the village, and we reap incredible benefits from, the, from God through these men. They pray, and they preach, and they train, and they cast vision, and they film Top It with Tommy videos. They organize events and will help lead ministries and provide counsel, and I love these men. And on a personal level, I've benefited from these guys. And in these five verses, we see two different models or forms, but both acceptable to God because there isn't just one way of doing ministry. And this makes the church flexible and versatile because the church's servants are flexible and versatile. And this isn't possible without a particular mindset that Paul had. Paul's ministry took the form that would best serve the people. chose bivocational ministry in Corinth. First, because he says he doesn't want to be a financial burden to the people. He wanted to offer the gospel free of charge. The second reason, because he didn't want to be accused of using the gospel for profit. This is the point that he elaborates on.
Corinth, he forgoes their rights because when it came to this, this situation, he came to the conclusion that he, him pursuing these rights would have done more harm than good. So he laid them aside. And the reason why this idea is so powerful to me is because it's rooted in soil that shows that when it came to his life and his ministry and his service, the form Paul's ministry took was shaped by asking, what do I need to be in order to minister here well? Paul was a missionary, but here we see that his missionary work looked different in Corinth than it did in Athens or Iconium or Lystra. His work flowed from him in different ways, dependent on where he was and the people that he served. He shaped his life around whatever form of ministry that would best serve the place where he was, vocational or bivocational, paid or not, not paid. So what does this do with, what does this, what does this do for us? What does this mean for us? What does this have to do with us? I don't know how many of you are still waiting for your check for serving in the toddler class a couple weeks ago. I don't know how many of you guys will continue serving now, knowing that you're not going to get paid for it. But I, I don't think many of us are considering whether or not we should be paid for being in ministry. But I think this still shapes the way we minister and serve. Because it tells me that, that sometimes we might, to, might need to lay some things aside. It shows me that sometimes the form of my service should be less about my preference and more about your needs. And this is where ministry begins to come alive because it becomes organic. It's not just on Sundays by people on payroll. It's not just programs and events and schedules and serve requests. It's driven by what's needed. Ministry can be someone taking someone to lunch because they're discouraged. It could be making your family pancakes and leading them in devotions in the morning or sending an email to someone that might need to hear some encouragement could be watching someone's kids while they rest. My, my wife got a text message a few weeks ago from a couple in the church that want, just wanted to watch our kids so that we can have a, a night to ourselves. And when my, when, when my wife told me this, I, my first response was, do they know how many kids we have? And it was great because they were willing to give up the Saturday, Saturday that they were entitled to to minister my, to my family. This others-focused approach to ministry frees it from the boxes that we try to put it in and allows it to flow from us in a variety of ways, flowing from our strengths and abilities, resources, and life stages, because there's more than one way to do it. And going back to the text now, now that Paul is freed up from having to support himself, he increases his ministry intensity. If you've been paying attention to the book of Acts, you could probably guess what happens next. Let's pick it up in verse 6. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Paul's increased intensity in the synagogue, synagogue was met with increased opposition. 
so in response to the Jewish outright opposition, Paul shakes the dust off himself, leaves this place, and then goes to the Gentiles, saying that he's no longer responsible. But we don't see him go far. Actually, he only goes, goes next door to a convert named Titius Justice because he's offered up his home next door to the synagogue to be Paul's new meeting place. And we see the setting for Paul's ministry move from the formality of the synagogue to the intimacy of a home, and it just explodes. So much so that even the ruler of the synagogue believes. God's working in a variety of different ways and in a a variety of different places. But what's really interesting here is is this is where I would expect this, this particular story to end. There have been some common themes throughout Paul's missionary journeys. Preaching has been followed by a mix of acceptance and rejection, and then there would be persecution or an attack, and then Paul would leave and then move on to the next city. We saw this in Antioch of Pisidia. We saw this in Thessalonica. We saw it in Berea, and we saw it in Philippi. Opposition usually triggers departure, but here it's different. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God to them. Paul has this vision, and in this vision, God tells him not to be intimidated by the opposition, but to continue speaking. He encourages Paul by promising that he'll be with him, and no one will do him wrong or do him any harm. And then he says something that's a little expected. He tells Paul that he has many in the city that are his people. And the reason this is unexpected is because he's talking about Corinth. Corrupt, immoral, depraved, shady Corinth. Outsiders looked at the people in this city and saw nothing but degenerates. But God looks at the people in the city and says, I have kids there. Many kids, in fact. And couched in this is the transformative power of the gospel. Because later Paul would write to these same people and talk about how the unrighteousness of the world would not inherit the kingdom of God. He talks about people being immoral and idolaters and revilers and drunkards and swindlers. And then stops and says, and such were some of you. But you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God not only saw what they were, but he saw what he would make them into. All of the immorality that characterized their lives before Christ would simply become who they were. This is the power of God to change, to wash, to restore, to make new for them and for us. So much so that I can look back on all the dirt that I did, all the stuff in our past, and say, that's just who I was. What's interesting here is that we know from First and Second Corinthians um, that years later, the people that were in this city that were saved were still train wrecks. But we also know that Paul still calls them saints. Because now that they are in Christ, their sin doesn't define who they are. So maybe, maybe your past makes you feel like more than a Corinthian that you would like to admit out loud. And if so, maybe you're here this morning because despite all the dirt you found yourself in, God looks at you and still says you're his. 
And then with this, God tells Paul that he has people in the city that are his. And Paul does something that up to this point has been uncharacteristic for this traveling missionary. He puts down roots. He settles in for a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. This encouragement from Jesus right at the center of Paul's entire being. He's compelled by the reality that there are people around him who will be saved through his preaching. And he's willing to do anything he can to get them. Work or no work, in Athens or Corinth, in the synagogue or house, to the Jews or to the Gentiles, the diverse ways he ministers all around will revolve around this central purpose, and he'll do anything in service of that purpose. We talk about the different models and forms of ministry in different ways for each of us, in different seasons, in different places, but they all revolve around the singular conviction that our God saves. Though the wickedness in Corinth is a far cry from Irvine. I know this because Irvine ranked 173 out of 180 in recent rankings of America's most sinful cities. Maybe by next year we can get to, to 180, but I think we might need a couple of Trader Joe's to get us there. Moving down here, the first things that stood out to me was that people actually go to the parks, right? Because where I'm from, <laughs> they were not safe. Irvine's not exactly known for its depravity. Nevertheless, I'm inclined to think that if God had people in Corinth, he has people in Irvine. God saw the harvest where others saw, where others saw just weeds. So, when I'm waiting to check out in the express line in Ralph's, and the guy ahead of me clearly has more than 10 items, and I'm looking around with frustration at all the crowds, what do I see? Do I see frustration? Do I see impatience rising in myself? Or do I see people that might belong to God? And that shift in perspective changes everything. So I want you to come back to this when you're stuck in apathy. Come back to why you're here. Come back to what you're doing and then take this to your neighborhoods, to your classrooms and offices. Take this to your sports fields and your restaurants that you might go to eat. God has people in those places that are his people and we're here to go get them in diverse ways that God has presented us opportunities to do so. Paul, encouraged by the sovereignty of God in Corinth, puts down roots for a year and a half. And even though Jesus promised him he wouldn't be harmed, he still would be opposed. Let's read it starting in verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things, and he drove them from the tribunal. So here we see an organized attack on Paul and his ministry in Corinth. Gallio was proconsul at this time and, and was the Roman ruler authority over not only Corinth, but all of Achaia, which would have also included Athens and Centria. 
So a ruling against Paul at this point could have hindered operations in an entire region. The accusation that was made was that Paul was persuading people to worship a God contrary to the Jewish law. And the reason they even see this as an issue to bring to Gallio that, that he would pop was because the Roman Empire recognized Judaism as a religion that could be practiced without interference. So if Christianity is proven to be outside of the scope of Judaism, it's also outside of the scope of Judaism's protection. And Paul would have to be stopped. But this doesn't play out the way they expected it to. We know this because before Paul even gets the chance to defend himself, Gallio throws the whole case out because he has, it has nothing to do with Roman law. His point is that this is a Jewish argument and they can deal with the infighting on their own because it's not his problem. This sounds like the way I respond to my kids' complaints when I'm being a bad parent. They come to me with a problem and before they finish telling me the issue, I'll stop them and ask, okay, is anyone bleeding? Do we need to call the cops on someone? Is one of you going to juvie, right? Which in my house is not outside of the realm of possibility because if I'm honest, we have two parents, an arsonist, a klepto, a con artist, and a snitch. (laughs) All who need Jesus. Need for law enforcement or an ambulance, whatever the problem they bring me, they could probably work it out amongst themselves. It's indifference. It's indifference that we see in Galileo. And this ruling is a big deal because it sets a precedent. With this ruling, Christianity is considered a legal religion and Paul can continue to work. Paul has been protected just as Jesus said he would. And this is a victory. Christianity can freely operate and spread without threat from the government. This is a good thing, but it comes with a sobering note. We see it in verse 17. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And this verse comes with questions. Who is the they that was doing the beating? Are they Jewish people or are they Greeks? Why is Sosthenes the one that's getting this beating? Is it because he's a Jewish leader or because he's a Christian sympathizer? But I think both of these questions are besides the, the point Luke is trying to make by recording this event. Luke is showing us the character of Gallio. He's an evil man. Evil not so much because of, the, of something he does, evil because of the something that he doesn't do. The phrase, paid no attention, occurs elsewhere in the New Testament, and it's almost always translated as doesn't care. Gallia watched a mob ruthlessly beat a man in front of him, and he didn't care. After having just said that the things he cares about include wrongdoing and vicious crime, he sees wrongdoing and vicious crime and doesn't care. And this is what Luke wants us to see in Gallio. Yes, God, through Gallio, protected his work in Corinth and in the entire region. But that didn't make Gallio and the government he represented an ally. 
We should rejoice and be thankful to God for the freedom that we have in our country. It is no small blessing. We should leverage our governmental authorities to do good and protect the innocent and preserve justice. And God has used them to do those things in instances. They, they were forces for good. But seeing this scene with Gallio reminds us that that doesn't make them allies. Because at the end of the day, as an institution, they do not care about the kingdom of God. We are not on the same team because our ultimate purposes don't align. So yes, they can be used to affect change. But no, they are not worthy of our allegiance. We have to be careful. Because I think we hope so desperately for good things for our families and cities and for our schools and our communities that we begin to affix our hope to those peoples or structures or institutions that we think can deliver. We have something better. We have someone better that's more powerful, that's more just. Someone that wields those structures like tools to accomplish what he sees fit. And that's where our hope is. In this passage, God saw fit to use Gallio to fulfill a promise to protect Paul while he ministered in Corinth. And that protection allowed Paul to continue to work. And that's what we see in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. Centrae, Centrea? Was it Kimberly? Centrea. <laughs> At Centrea, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they, came to, and they came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Glacia, uh, Glacia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. A lot is happening here and not a lot of space. It feels like Luke is kind of just rushing through the remainder of Paul's journey, just capturing a few highlights. Most notably, after Paul receives the additional protection for Gallio, he stays even stayed there a total of three years or more ministering in that city. He leaves and makes a couple stops in the lands in Ephesus and reasons with the Jews about Jesus. Then he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus and heads to Caesarea and then back to Antioch. And this is the completion of Paul's second missionary journey. Now, after some time, he leaves again and starts his third journey, visiting previously established churches in Asia Minor. And all of this sets up Paul free man in a city of Ephesus. That's next week. Let's get back to verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began, to, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Here we're introduced some, to someone that had a huge impact on the early church. His name was Apollos. He was from Alexandria. 
and knew the Old Testament well. He had a passion and he preached well and even taught accurately about the things about Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. And this draws a lot of attention from scholars and commentators, and there's a lot of debate. And it revolves around the question of whether or not Apollos was a Christian at this point. This raises a few questions. How can he not be a Christian if he knew and taught accurately, not accurately about Jesus? Why did Aquila and Priscilla have to explain things to him more fully? If he wasn't a Christian because he only knew the baptism of John, why don't we read about him being baptized like we do of the other converts in Acts, more specifically like we'll see in Acts 19? And with all of this, I think it's important to remember that Christianity at this point is still relatively new. There were people who knew the Old Testament well, understood that there was a Messiah that was coming, and like we see with Apollos, they even began to identify that Messiah as Jesus, but still didn't fully know all that was revealed. And we're stuck in the state of transition from Judaism to Christianity. And we're going to see this again in Acts 19. Luke doesn't give us exact details about how or when Apollos became a Christian because he's more interested in the content of his teaching or lack of content. Luke drives the point home that Apollos' teaching was not wrong, it was just incomplete. But even in his incompleteness, this dude could preach. And that's what he's doing when he meets Aquila and Priscilla for the first time. They hear what he's saying, they're realizing that there's something that he's missing, so they pull him aside and give her a fuller explanation of the gospel. They didn't make a scene, it's actually encouragingly subtle. It wasn't out in front of a crowd, it was in the background. It was a small thing that had a big impact. Because Apollos goes on to Achaia, meaning he left Ephesus and went back to Corinth and Athens, where he, quote, greatly helped because he powerfully refuted the Jews. And we know that he had such a huge impact that on, on the Corinthian church is that he even rivaled Paul in status, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, I think, 3. This little act in verse 26 had a huge impact. And this shows us that small acts of faithfulness can have a massive impact. There can be great significance in things that seem insignificant. I remember I was seven years old when my dad gathered my family up and opened his Bible and just started sharing with us how he was studying it and the things that he was learning. And I remember just being in awe of the depth of what he was doing. And I don't even remember what he was saying. But I remember how I felt. And that set me on a course to love studying and teaching the Bible that would still shape me 30 years later. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think most of us can pinpoint a moment where someone in our lives shifted everything. Because life is made up of those little moments, allowing acts of small faithfulness or obedience to have massive effects. So how does that not move us into small, faithful acts of obedience? What are some small things in front of you now that you could reap large fruit from later down the road? So with that, if, if Corinth was a reality TV show, who would be in the opening credits? Right, we would probably see a, a scruffy little church planter named Paul. Right. And then the scene would shift to a shop with a hard-working, hospitable immigrant, immigrant couple named Aquila and Priscilla. 
and there and there would, there, there would just be this charismatic, bold, passionate preacher named Apollos in front of a crowd, and he would turn and wink at the camera, right? Then we would zoom out and we'd see Timothy and Silas bringing aid and encouragement. We'd see Titius and Crispus. We might even see Sosthenes because there's evidence that he got saved after he got beat up. And they would all be writing and serving and preaching and laughing and praying that God would help them reap the harvest of souls that he had in Corinth. Now, I know all these people weren't in the same city at the same time. But what I want you to see is that the diverse cast of characters and roles we saw in this city, and it's the perfect bookend to our time this morning. We started talking, we started by talking about the various ways God's people serve. Then we said we're all united around a single single purpose. We see various forms of ministry revolve around a singular purpose, and we see those things walked out by diverse people. Different backgrounds, different life stages, different resources, different gifts, very different people. And to describe this, Paul uses the illustration of a body. Each part is different to serve a purpose with function. He says, not all can be eyes because then there would be no hearing. Not all can be ears because then there would be no sight. Then he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 18 through 20. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Paul's point being the different parts of the body were different with purpose. Likewise, different people in the church are different with purpose. I've heard a pastor say it this way. We can't be us unless you be you. Because even if you don't feel like you fit in, don't fit in, even if you don't feel like you fit in, it doesn't mean that you don't belong. Like a puzzle made by God, the parts of you that makes you different might be the parts of you that make you fit. Those strengths and gifts and experience and life stages you're in that sets you apart makes you different, but it might be the reason that you're here. Maybe you have a home to open up and can, can, and can disciple young Christians. Maybe you're passionate about, about church planting. Maybe God has so strongly gifted you that you could preach the paint off the walls. You just need to be taken aside to train. Maybe God has put you here to support and encourage and bring aid. Maybe your place is out front leading or maybe it's in the background with the details. Maybe it's none of these, but the Bible tells us that it's something. And you can join kids ministry until you get it figured out. <laughs> this, is, this is part of our identity as a church. And it's foundational to you through the gospel. See, the gospel doesn't just restore our vertical relationship with God. It gathers us into a community of believers, each with a unique purpose. And we walk in this power. And when we walk in the power of the Spirit, it harmonizes. And it's beautiful. Jesus did this. Jesus made this. Dear saints, you have a purpose and you belong. And we'll work, and we'll pray, and we'll clean up the parts of our lives that need refinement. But outside of that, God made you who you are and who he wants you to be for his glory. So do what God called you to do, whether it's vocational or bivocational, whether it's here or somewhere else, whether it's ministry that's formal or informal, whether it happens in this building or in your home. 
whether it's out front or in the background. Whatever it is, you can do it all to the glory of God because you don't need to fit in in order to belong. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and I pray that that we would grasp with a greater understanding that, that, that you are sovereign and that, that who we are, we aren't that way by accident, that you've wired us and, and given us likes and abilities and strengths and placed us in places to, to, because there's work and there's purpose in it. I pray that we would feel, that we would feel the sense of belonging to the fold pray for us that we would know that, that we're here for a purpose and for a reason. And that you would free us in the confidence to be who we are for your glory. I pray that you'd put in front of us various opportunities to serve and to minister and to preach. I pray that when they come that we give us eyes to see them and the boldness to walk in them. I thank you for these folks here. I thank you for the body that you've given us. I thank you for, for the opportunity to gather. And I pray that we would just respond in joy and gratitude for the things that you've given us. In the Son's name we pray. Amen.